the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, Mysticon Book Madness as audience drags the Cthulhu-esque secrets of publishing from quivering editors and authors. Beware, there is some sausage grinding not meant for mortal eyes to see. A contest for the best bumper sticker in the orbital parking lot, plus the audio finale of Frank Chadwick's excellent short story, Murder on the Hockflieger Ost. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Editor Tony Daniel. Well, this is our 52nd podcast. That's right, we have now brought you a Bain Free Radio Hour podcast once a week for a whole year. Hey, we're just getting started. We have a lot more in store for our listeners in the coming weeks, including some all-new audio drama and a new serialized book coming up. And, of course, we'll continue our mission of bringing you discussions and interviews with the Bain authors you love. This time on the podcast, we had the second of our Bain Free Radio Hour remote podcast. This one was recorded at Mysticon in Roanoke, Virginia. We had a nice, fairly numerous audience who indulgently sat around while we got set up and then listened and asked some really good questions. In on the podcast were Bain author Tom Kratman, Bain Unsolicited Manuscripts Editor Gray Reinhardt, the Slushmaster General, as we call him, Bain Associate Editor Laura Haywood Corey, and me. Our topic, the book, From Conception to Production to the Bookshelf, How Does It Happen? This should be of interest to potential new writers and to those who just wonder how the sausage gets made. Also, we're going to bring you the finale of the complete audio short story of Murder on the Hockflieger Ost. This is by Frank Chadwick, the author of the excellent science-based steampunk novel, The Forever Engine, which is currently at booksellers everywhere. But first, here's the news. Hey, Laura, we have a really amusing Bane contest going on at the moment. This is our best bumper sticker in the orbital parking lot contest. What is that? Oh, cool. So, say you're a Royal Manticoran Navy commanding officer from David Weber's Honorverse. How do you go about distinguishing your RMN warship from all the others in the orbital parking lot? The answer? Bumper stickers. We want to hear your ideas for RMN bumper sticker slogans. So Bump- these would be the bumper stickers that go on the back of your starship. Yep. So they should be suitable for affixing to your RMN warship. What about do it with honor or I break for tree cats? Well, sorry, those are already taken. All right, so those can't be the entries. Right, but anything else is fair game. And the winning entry will be selected by the Bain editorial staff, us, and will receive a signed limited edition of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom. So how do you enter? Well, I'm getting to that. Oh. <laughs> to enter, send your slogan in the body of an email to contest at bain.com by March 20th. What should you, since you're the one that gets these, what should they put in the subject headline to distinguish them? Say RMN slogan. All right. So... That's a cool contest. Come up with a bumper sticker slogan for uh, your RMN warship from David Weber's Honorverse. Have you read any of these yet that have come in, Laura? 
I've not seen any yet. I heard somebody said they were we had we had got oh I think it was Tony that had seen some some great ones so far but we want to hear yours so go for it send those in If you can read this you're too close <laughs> This contest is to make note of and celebrate that uh, David Weber's Shadow of Freedom is now out in mass market paperback this month That is the very latest Honorverse novel and check it out. It's at booksellers everywhere. Welcome to another remote podcast. This is our second. We did one at a Logicon. We are at Mysticon, a nice convention, not so little anymore, it seems, in Roanoke, Virginia. Today we have with us Bain author Tom Crapman and Bain editors Gray Reinhardt and Laura Haywood Corey. Hi, folks. Hello. Hi, Tony. Hi, Tony. Uh, Tom Crapman is a retired U.S. Army lieutenant colonel and the creator of the Carrera Military Science Fiction Series, which includes a desert called Peace, Carnifex, the Lotus Eaters, the Amazon Legion, come and take them, and uh, upcoming The Rods and the Axe. Tom is also the creator of the Countdown Military Adventure Series, uh, which we saw. Uh, we just had, a, we just had a, uh, a slideshow in here, and we saw some, some of those great covers, Countdown, Countdown M-Day, and... He's also with John Ringo, the author of Watch on the Rhine, one of my favorites for his sheer perversity um, <laughs> and, and yellow eyes. It's, it's, a, it's got a bunch of Nazis that are, what is the, the, the Watch on the Rhine? What's the conceit of it? Yes. Um, well, it's part of the Pauline invasion. Uh, the Chancellor right. of Germany happens to, be, to visit Fredericksburg after it's destroyed. And Germany's expanding too, but... You know, it, it's not like they anybody has an excess of experienced combat troops. He bucks the trend and says, oh, we're going to use the SS too, because we've still got 25,000 of them left, so we're going to rejuvenate them, and we're going to get as much use out of them. And, uh, so they rejuve the effect, the old effect, SS guys from right. World War II. <laughs> Most, some, of whom are, some of whom are unrepentant, uh, unreconstructed Nazis, at least I show one of them who is. And most of whom said, there are probably reasons why we lost the war. We can't put our finger on it yet. All right. Uh, also with us is Gray Reinhardt. Gray is the author of short stories that have appeared in Analog, Asimov's, and elsewhere. His latest is What is a Warrior Without His Wounds? Is that the latest? Which appeared in Asimov's science fiction. Asimov's last July. Yes. Gray is also a noted filker. Um, and, uh, I think you just like saying the word filker. <laughs> I do. And his, his album is Truth, and Li- Truth Lies and Make Believe. And uh, it's recently out. You can get it at Bandcamp uh, and Amazon and at Gray's right, uh, website. Gray is the, as we've, as we've heard, he's the unsolicited manuscripts editor at Bain Books, the slush master general. And it's Gray. It's on your business card, right? Yeah. <laughs> no, I never actually put it on the business card, but it's, uh, it's the highest rank I'll ever hold, actually. Yeah. Well, you, Gray is also a retired U.S. Air Force lieutenant colonel, correct? Yeah. So yeah, we have, I tell people that I thought about joining the military, but I joined the Air Force instead. <laughs> you, one day I want to do a podcast just talking about you seeing rocket launches or being around rocket uh, stuff, because that is fascinating. Corner him sometime and talk to him about his uh, his days watching giant rockets take off. Um, and we have Bain Associate Editor Laura Haywood Cora joining us as well. Laura is the general do-everything purpose uh, person around the Bain office, transmission of manuscripts, proofreading, all that cover copy, many of the books themselves, and 
and selection of teaser materials, you know, that stuff that goes at the front of mass market editions. Um, that's that's Laura's uh, purview. That's just scratching the surface of what Laura does. Um, so let's start. What I wanted to do, uh, I thought we might talk about the process a book goes through uh, as a, at a publisher such as Bain. Maybe tell a few tales about that. Uh, and, and I'd like to take some questions as well since we're doing a remote. So you guys start thinking of questions. Let's start with the conception. In the beginning, in the beginning, Tom is what? In the beginning is usually a long drive, uh, and somewhere in the course of that drive, when I'm, I'm totally zoning, a title will pop into my head. And with the title comes a beginning, an end point, uh, several points in the middle, and it's a book. All I have to do is fill in the spots in between. Pretty easy, huh? <laughs> Well, sometimes it's been easy. Sometimes it's been really bitching hard. Now, are you, uh, you know, they sometimes they divide writers into uh, outliners and seat of the pantsers, uh, although I divide them into outliners and non-writers myself. But uh, that, that's it. It's an interesting question. I, I, I write books in a spiral, and it's, it's a pure result of law school. A spiral shape? In a, in a way, yeah. In time and space, a spiral shape. You know, I, I mentioned I've got a beginning and end and a few waypoints, but okay, I write those and then I fill in the waypoints, but it doesn't have a lot of description or characterization or, or and then I put in some of that and then I go through it again and I put in some of that and, and in effect, you guys can't see it, but my finger is moving in a spiral over this table in front of me. In effect, I've written in a spiral. An argument could be made that that's, no, at some point in time, that in between setting down the first word and finishing the book, I've done an outline and then filled it in. I tend not to think of it that way, but the argument's there, and it's hard to refute. It's like a, a skeleton. There. There's still a structure. Yeah. Building from. It, it, it's like a, the way that, say, Bob Eggleton paints a painting, it sounds like. Um, starts out with the, with a wash and then gets his drawing on there and then fills it in with the... the kind of, yeah. Yeah, kind of. Maybe not a good analogy. No, no, it's kind of. Um, well, what is uh, what about revisions? Um, after you've got the, the magic on paper, do you do revisions? Um, usually not. Usually after, I mean, I, I, when I say spiral, I mean, I've gone through this thing 27 times. Um, I'm so sick of it by the time I turn the book, I never want to see it again as long as I live. I can deal with that emotion. Yeah. yeah. And then, of course, you guys will send it to me for the paperback version, and I have to read it one more time. Um, you have to read it and read it and read it. So, uh, revisions. Um, sometimes, the whole Desert Called Peace series started out here on Earth. Um, it was not uh, initially the war against the, uh, the radical Islamic fundamentalists. That, that, was, a re that was a revision. Um, originally, did, did the bad guy was was the, the United States, yeah. Bill did, Clinton's United States. Did nine eleven happen? Uh, Something like it. Yeah. Uh, in the in the early but, I mean, uh, while you were writing the book, did it? Um, or was it after? No, actually, I put it aside uh, at that at that point in time, and I was doing other things. Um, let me think. What happened? Nine one happened just before Jim Bain asked me to write a state of disobedience, which, by the way, says I did. So you, so it, it, your villain changed in the course of the writing the book, and you wrote it over portions of it. You wrote years before other portions. Some portions of it I wrote in law school, uh, nineteen ninety three, 
94, 95. Some of it, a good chunk of it, I wrote in Germany in 97. So while you were um, being a lawyer, or a soldier, I or a soldier, you were in part of the nineties. You were, uh, you went back into the army. Uh, I went back in 1997 for the Bosnia thing. Although I didn't end up in Bosnia, I ended up in pristine comfort at Darmstadt. And where was that? Where was that place where you were a lawyer um, that was a peace institute or something? <laughs> oh, um, yeah. Just to show that there, there is not not only that there is a god, but that he has a hell of an interest in sense of humor. Uh, I ended up as the director of rule of law at the U.S. Army Peacekeeping Institute, which I, I never made it a secret. If if I could have shut it down, I would have. Um, what do do any of these experience? I mean, every, obviously you're. Books draw heavily on your military experience. Um, yeah, you might say. Yeah, you might say. <laughs> um, how, do you, how do you? Is there things that you want to get in and you do get in, or is it just what what comes to you in, on your drives? Um, both. Yeah. You talked about a sergeant major that was one of your favorites that you've worked in. Oh yeah, with. Joshua McIntosh. He's a, a tall. He's dead now, unfortunately. He's a tall, um, skinny, really, really, really ugly um, Virgin Island. Um, and he was the best sergeant major I ever, uh, by way of example, I was a company commander. Uh, he came out to inspect the company, training. You know, he reported in, hello, sir, I'm new sergeant major. I'm here to inspect training. Hi, sergeant major. Good to have you. I'm lying at this particular time. But he sends his driver home. He jumps in the back of a trap with one of my squads, and he spends... 10 days with us in the field, right? Teaching, coaching, doing what sergeant majors are really supposed to do. He's actually the senior sergeant major in the, on, on Fort Stewart in the 24th Infantry Division, and he refused to be division sergeant major. He refused to be a brigade sergeant major. He thought that it was a waste of human talent for sergeant major not to be with the battalion he knew what he was of his own branch. Well, he, he thought that that would, would be true generally, that all sergeant majors in the battalion level were a waste. And, um, and he was great. He was he was mean and he was miserable in garrison. But as soon as you got him away from the buildings and out in the field, he became a very, very happy camper. So he worked his way into your imagination. He worked his way into your books. Um, or someone like him. Oh, it's him. <laughs> oh, it's him. <laughs> yeah, if, if you see somebody with a, who, whose name begins with an MC or a Mac and he's a sergeant major, it's him. So this is, I mean, here's a perfect, write what you know, you know. Tom was a was a um, infantry guy officer for many many years, and, and his books reflect that. I was and, enlisted too. And oh yeah, he enlisted and then went back. In the they already gave me a scholarship um, and sent me back to BC to finish my degree and get commissioned. So how did uh, how did a state of disobedience? How did that come to Jim Bain's attention? Your first novel. <laughs> People ask me all the time how to get published, and I always answer, I don't um, Leon, I joined Bain's Bar and had some pretty good arguments on it and was enjoying it. So you were um, a bar fly before you? A little bit before. Yeah. Uh, Leon Jester um, asked me if I was going to StellarCon. In um, Huntsville. No, wait. No, no, that's the Charlotte. Yeah. Well, no, it was actually Greensboro. Greensboro is still, yeah. And uh, I wasn't. Then he said... Well, Ringo's going to have some advanced copies of Gus Frank for sale. I said, oh, well, I'll go with that. And Ringo and I hit it off pretty much like long-lost brothers. And um, we ended up in the hotel bar telling party stories. And I, I, I swear to God, it was like the figure of God reached down and tapped me on the shoulder. 
and said, be thou charming this night of Philip. <laughs> um, Bain came in and, uh, you know, introductions were made around and I introduced myself just like this. I said, yes, I'm Tom. Hi, I'm Tom Crapman. Yes, I write. No, I don't write science fiction. Relax. I'm not going to try to sell you a book under the table. Uh-huh. And we went, Ringo and I went back to the stories. And I'm, I'm saying we've got people rolling on the floor laughing. Uh, like, okay, the Sergeant Coffee story in M-Day. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely true. Sergeant, and it was Sergeant Coffee. <laughs> he was our medical platoon sergeant in Panama. Um, do you know the Sergeant Coffee story? I haven't read that one yet. All right. Well, now, this isn't the 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 discipline story. No, it's a big it's... needle story. Okay. Um, I had a composite platoon for a defense live fire. I, I think one of my troops only was my own. My platoon sergeant was the medical platoon sergeant, Sergeant Coffee. And there was a cook that we had out on observation post. And I'm trooping the line. I look over, well, I'm sorry, before the cook goes out on observation post, I'm trooping the line and the cook, instead of digging, is asleep. So I kick him a few times because you can do that. You know, to get up, motherfucker. Uh, okay. So he gets up, right? I troop the line some more. I come back, he's asleep again. Send him out an OP where I can watch him all the time. What does OP stand? Observation post. Uh-huh. Uh, it's just at the... Uh, it can be an effective, the max effective range of, of your basic rifle, or it can be as far as you can see. In this case, it's only about 200 meters as far as you can see. He went to sleep. So I went out there, matter in hell, and uh, I get there and say, you know, Gibson, is his name. Gibson, get out. Oh, sir, I'm sick. Oh, you're sick, are you? Sorry, coffee. Sir, Gibson here is sick. <laughs> sir. Coffee comes and grabs two medics, his aid bag and a poncho, and they come running out. Gibson remembers the Sergeant Coffee method of dealing with malingerers. And he's out. I'm feeling much better, sir. <laughs> Sergeant Coffee, the boy's delirious. I think you better, sir. <laughs> right. So um, the two big medics that Coffee break brought with him, Gibson starts, I'm not sick, I'm not sick. They grab Gibson and pick him up. Coffee flips out a poncho underneath him. They slam Gibson down on the ground really hard. Then they sit on him. And Coffee pulls his needle out of his apex. So big and crude. I think his grandfather, who was a medic in the First World War, left it to him. And Gibson sees this and he starts going hysterical. I'm not sick. I'm not sick. It's, the boy's delirious on Coffee. I think you better hurry. Sorry. He sticks him and he misses. Gibson screams. Uh, right? And I, Sergeant Coffee says. So he went ahead with it. Well, Sergeant Coffee says, uh, you know, damn it, sir, I missed. And I say, train to standard, not to time, Sergeant Coffee. Stick the malingering son of a bitch again. <laughs> Fourteen sticks later, Gibson is crying like a baby. Oh the poncho is covered with blood. Ow. And um, Coffee looks up. You think he's had enough? <laughs> Gibson, do you think he can uh, stay awake now? <laughs> yes, sir, I think I can stay awake. Okay. So Coffee gives him the final stick and IV, and that's even the story. But that's, uh, yeah, the Sergeant Coffee story, for example. Anyway, uh, 9 o'clock rolls around. Ringo and Bane exchange classes. Um, they're going to go to dinner. They get up. Ringo comes back about... 30 seconds later, maybe. And uh, says, why don't you come with us? And I say, nah, he doesn't know me. It'd be awkward. No, you don't understand. He wants me. He sent me back to get you. So, Bane beat around the bush for about two hours and finally said, there's this book I'd like you to write. And, you know, I was somewhat unenthused, but I was extremely unenthused about being a lawyer. This looked like a way to escape it. So I said, yeah, I'll give you a shot. I did. It's an okay book. It, it pissed off the left. It continues to piss off the left. So, again, so it was an idea that Jim Bain threw out and you took up. 
No, it's an idea he threw at me and, and held out to entice me no, to, to write it. Was it was bait, as it were. It was bait, yeah. could, uh... So the manuscript comes in. Let us say that it's not a Crapman novel, uh, Gray, but a first-time novel by an unpublished writer. How do they get it to you, and what happens next to this manuscript? Well, we still accept... If it is a Crapman novel, it comes to me, or, uh, well, me. Tony. <laughs> and, and we start dealing with it, and we'll talk about that in a moment. Right. Um, as far as uh, new authors, we still accept uh, submissions both by paper and electronically. We prefer to get them electronically. It just makes life a little bit easier. Um, instructions for all that are, of course, on the website. So go to the band.com website to find out how to do it. And it's kind of a test, right? It it's in the be. FAQ. There are, there are yeah. guidelines that we ask people to follow, which means that there are guidelines that many people don't follow. That's just sort of the way it is. And we get a lot, a lot of slush. And this is what unsolicited manuscripts are called slush. And anything you can do to not mess it up so that uh, the person that is getting it doesn't say, oh, I can't read this because it's not done in the way we asked them to. Try to read the instructions really well because people are looking for a reason not to, you know, because we get, what, we get like 10 manuscripts a day or something like that. We have certainly gotten that many. Averages about 100 to 120 a month, uh, both on the electronic side and the paper side. I try to stay ahead of about 90% of that uh, there's a percentage that I will look at and think this is good enough that we really need to study this one in depth to see if it really has a, a, a chance, and I'll set those aside. And right now, believe it or not, I have about 50 of yeah. those that have made that first cut. And I have, thankfully, I have some people who will help me look at <clears throat> some of those, but each one of those I end up going through before we ever get to the point of actually sending it to Tony Weisskopf mm -hmm. to take a look at it. So um, if something's been there forever, it might be a good sign. With us, if it has been there more than six months, it's a very good sign. Um, Ringo tells a story. He, he made a submission probably around 1999 or so, and it simply disappeared into the cracks. That has happened, and I will not say that it will never happen again. It also happened, I believe, with Larry Correa's novel because it never got back past the post office box in New York. What uh, what happened with, with, if I remember the story correctly, um, after some period of time of Ringo, and Ringo was a bar fly, et cetera, et cetera, Jim asked him, well, why don't you, and I think it may have discussed the Pauline series somewhat, but why don't you write it up and send it to me? John went like, I did. He did. <laughs> and he kind of did. Well, do it again then. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it was accepted then. Part of that story, if I recall, was that about the time that he was talking with Jim about it, it was had finally bubbled up to the top of whoever was reading the slush at that time. Yeah. And so he got a letter from the people in charge of the slush saying, thank you, but this is, is not for us. <laughs> yeah, that's And then true. shortly thereafter, 
got the call from Jim saying, oh, yeah, we can work with this. Was this, this was late 90s? I think so. Yeah, so. I, because I started out as the as a slush reader at Bain. I was reading paper slush on New York, uh, but I don't think I, I rejected Ringo. I was, uh, I was 2001, I think. So at least I got out of that. Maybe I rejected Korea. I hope not. I don't know. I hope to God not. When I got in there, nobody had been reading slush for a year. And this was before we did a lot of electronic submissions. And it was, the, the office was maybe half the size of this room. And this, the walls were piled high with columns of, uh, of slush that I, I needed to go through. So this is a reason to, all right, what's the most important thing a writer should remember about submitting a manuscript to Bain? Great. I would say read Bain authors and understand what we publish, for one thing. Um, if you send us a book of poetry, the odds are we are not going to publish that. Uh, we might, uh, but it's not going to be from a first-time author. What would you say is your most important or one of your list of important things? I would like to be able to make sense of the book from the basic level of the English language. Mm -hmm. Good. We do, we do get quite a few submissions that are either people who's, for whom English is not their first language, perhaps, and, and so it's very difficult to parse what it is they're saying. We also get what quite a few from people who are, let's say, of a more literary bent and are tend toward flowery embellishments when we really prefer a much more straightforward storytelling style. Just, you know, Bain is known for storytelling. Um, that's what we do. So um, it, there's nothing, you don't have to know that in your mind. What you can do is read Bain books and get it in your, in your writerly conscious so that um, you, can, you can do it if you're, you're a writer. Um, we, we're probably not going to do it if your main character um, commits suicide at the end and like a book. <laughs> Did he really say that? <laughs> and it's that gonna, was your out loud voice. That was my out loud voice. <laughs> yeah. What you just described, though, Gray, is someone whose uh, English is not only not their first language, it's not their second language either. That's very possible, <laughs> yes. But these things, I mean, you know, slush horror stories are, are, are many. Um, we get a lot of submissions from prisons as well, um, and they have some interesting uh, things to say. They do, but the one thing that I appreciate about the submissions that I have seen from the, the penitentiaries is that these guys are actually in the penitentiary writing mm. a book rather than working out and doing yeah. drugs. Well, maybe they're doing that too. So they're doing something far worse but than they could be. <laughs> exactly. I, I applaud them just for making the effort yeah, yeah, yeah. when it comes to that. The some some are great and are you know fine submissions, but some um, there's a there's a scariness when I was reading that. I got one submission from a prison that was the cover letter was written in feces, etc. So and it was brilliant, but we published it. No, no. no. <laughs> the first week within about the first week that I started at Bain, I don't know if I ever told you this story, Greg, but maybe I did, but. I, one of the things that I do, I'm sort of a jack-of-all-trades, is I answer the phones. And I answered the phone, and it was this gentleman who'd just gotten his rejection letter. And he started yelling at me because we rejected his book. And he told us that we were all a bunch of mean old poopy heads. And we are. <laughs> and then he hung up. Oh, man. 
Well, I mean, the answer to that is, can I have your name, please, so you can make sure <laughs> that it stays rejected. Yeah. Anything else? The, the 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 really the important thing is is to know your audience and submit to the publishers that are publishing. Don't change what you're writing. Write what you're good at, but submit to the publishers who are publishing what you're good at, so that you don't waste your time because it can take a long time for a book to get read and come back to you. And if it's something that we don't just don't do. Um, we don't do mysteries. You know, we don't do romance novels. Um, and people will send these in. They really will. There are a lot of romance science fiction novels that are really yeah. just romance novels. That's true. That's true. And, and we actually do get a fair share of uh, picture books, children's picture books, and things mm -hmm. of that nature from people who uh, they have right. no idea what we publish or are likely to publish in the future. I have gotten to the point where I begin to look for titles that look out of place within the, the electronic slush system. And if I see one that just looks really odd, you know, Mr. Wonderful's Adventure in, in the Woods, I can generally pick that out and look at it very, very quickly and get it back so that that author knows <laughs> right away that this is not the kind of thing we do. The, uh, I think the cover letter that says this is going to be the next Harry Potter is also a good sign. Of, uh... <laughs> yeah, we do have a lot of people who think very highly of their work, yes. Um, let us think highly of their work. Just tell us what the thing is about. All right, so these are some of the, the tips for, uh, for, for submitting. All right, so if you send, you send us uh, your manuscript, and we love it, and we're, we decide we're going to publish it. Um, oh, and I'm great, I want to ask you, what's the best part of being the slush editor? We talk about these, you know, there's too much negative stuff talked about slush sometimes. There's some great stuff that comes in. For me, the best part is finding that, that book that I really feel good about recommending. It doesn't happen often. But when it happens, I'm, I'm thrilled to be able to send Tony an email and say, this is a really good book. It's a good story, well told. It fits with the kind of thing that we publish. And I really think that you should take a look at it. Now, I have done that many more times than she has said, yes, I agree. We're going to back this, this novel. But that's just a, the nature of the economics of things. We can't afford to yeah. publish all of the books that are good. Because um, if every novel is the first novel, we won't make any money. That's right. Um, but but the good ones find a way. You know, they find a way. Uh, so a book comes in uh, that we're going to publish. Tony's read it. Um, she might. She usually will line edit it as an editor, um, and then it, if she doesn't, I might line edit it. Um, I'm I'm doing that often, and then uh, after that goes to a copy editor. So, Laura, can you walk us through the process a manuscript goes from this to production? Well, the author will turn it in. Tony will read it and make her initial notes on it, and then we'll send it out to the copy editor, and then the copy editor will start doing their work on it. Well, once it's copy edited, comes back to us. And what is a copy editor? Let's copy editor does it's copy It's not a editing. proofreader. 
And it's not an editor that can change meaning of, in a book. It's an intermediate. Yeah, it's checking for things like consistency. You give a character blue eyes on page one. Well, on page 100, you can't have your, this character have green eyes. That's what your good copy... <laughs> but yeah, but that's what your good copy editor does. They can't change from Renee with two E's to Renee with one E at the end. They can't be male at the start of the book, female in the middle of the book, unless it's that kind of book. <laughs> so they check for consistency and making sure that if you have make something up, your little MacGuffin, that it stays the same and it behaves the same way throughout the story. So that's and, a bit of it. And they make style sheets up as well if you're if the book is a series. And there's a giant style sheet for uh, for the Carrera series, for instance, that we send to the copy editor, who is usually Mo. Yeah, well, Modine Moon. Modine Moon, who's a great copy editor. I, I, I agree with that assessment. Uh, she catches all kinds of interesting, interesting things. You turn the things in and you think they're clean, and it's just... Go ahead. Now, mine are usually fairly clean, but I know I made mistakes. What is it? Often the copy editor will, will have author queries um, back to you, like, do you mean this or that, that you have to, and that's another stage of it, right? Um, that can be either something large or small. Sometimes copy editors find something that, that sets off, oh, shit, i got to rewrite a little bit. And this is a stage you can rewrite in. Um, like a paragraph or a page or a chapter. Um, next, after that, when it comes back, when the author's approved it, uh, for the queries, it comes back from the copy editor. Where does it go? Uh, usually goes out for proofreading at that point. And then, well, no, typesetting first. Typeset. Typesetting first and then proofreading. The typesetter is the person who makes it look pretty. They take the, the Microsoft Word file and turn it into what it's going to look like when it's found in book form. That's a dangerous stage from the author's point of view because errors creep into the, the typesetting. Yeah. Yes. Uh, it's not even necessarily anybody's fault. It's mostly automated, I think. But mm -hmm. you'll find spaces between words disappearing. Mm -hmm. Spellings change for odd reasons that you can't quite figure out. I remember there was one occasion where a comma disappeared. It changed the meaning of a, a sentence. It changed the meaning of a paragraph which basically destroyed the damn book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for want of an ill, for want of a comma. Yes. I caught it, but you know, yeah. it was yeah. really... Well, this is, yeah, I mean, <laughs> and at this point, this is when we start preparing the art as well, is when, when it gets typeset, and then that's when the art comes out. You guys know what an art is, right? Mm -hmm. Mastering a copy. Yeah, yes. ARC. Yeah. yeah, and these are the, what we send out to reviewers and other authors to get blurbs. Ideally, we like to get those into the reviewer's hands three to four months before the book comes out. And then if you're familiar with the Maine website, we actually sell these because you guys want them. Mm -hmm. And Jim Maine was happy to oblige. So We sell them. You get them early, about four months early usually. And, uh, and they're remember, riddled with typos. Yes, so do not email us about typos in the ERs. We know there are typos in the ERs. Yeah. Uh, we're, at, we're basically charging people double for for a book that hasn't been proofread yet. But you get it early. That's the thing. You get to read that Weber now, you yeah. know, that, um, or, or whatnot. So uh, after it goes to the typesetter, um, 
then it comes back from the typesetter, and errors have been introduced in typesetting. This is why this is why self-publishing is you don't get these processes in self-publishing, and you don't have the error checking that you know. Beyond the fact the promotion and the and the selection by editors, not yourself, just the sheer mechanical ability to get a lot of eyes on a book is something that a lot of self-published authors are not able to do. Um, something that publishers can do. So it comes back from the typesetter. And that's when it then goes for proofreading. And we send it out to at least... Ideally, we'll have two rounds of proofreading on it. Because there's uh, no matter how good of a proofreader you are, you are going to miss one or two things. So ideally, we like to get two different proofreaders to look at it. And the author. Well, I don't know if every, every author does. I go through it yeah. know, with considerable care at that stage. There's nothing I can do before that, but at that stage. Yeah. Well, yeah, this is one of the last chances to really make fixes, is the proofreading stage. There, there was one occasion where my proof comments were ignored, and that really pissed me. Oh, yeah? Well, was, when was that? When, when I was... No, it was about five years, five, okay. six years, seven years ago. But it, it pissed me off like it didn't do that. Seven years ago is before my time too. Sure. But it starts to it starts to cost money to make major author changes at this point. So we don't like it if you're going to rewrite a chapter or something. I, no, it wasn't I know, I know you didn't do that. It was yeah, sheer grammar and spelling. Do we have a question? And one ins an insert of one name. I, I was just going to say in, in one of my contracts, I, they had came out and said when it got when it gets to proofs, if you change more than X percent of the book or you know that then it then the author will reimburse the publisher you know from my advance I would have to pay them some money back because they were going to go and send the retypes and stuff and yeah. they really did not want to do that so he's saying that people will uh, that that some publishers actually take the price of you making a correction on the proof if, if, if you decide like oh, oh wait I really want to rewrite that opening to that chapter once it's already set and you know in proof stage, they they're like, you you should have caught that in line editing and in copy editing. We should start putting that in the cut. Damn you! I you know I don't think we have a lot of rewriters among the main authors. You don't do it after you're professional. You just don't do it because you turned in something you don't want to rewrite a great deal. In my case, I'm sick of looking. And you're very sick of looking at it, but then you just want it to be over and out there and to be able to talk to people about it instead of your own mind. Um, and that very last stage is the blue lines, and that's where you really can't make any corrections unless the author's name is misspelled or the title is misspelled. That's when we check like those running heads and the page numbers and, and such. So, so that's where it really costs money to change is at the blue line stage. I think it's 50 bucks a page. I don't know. Yeah, it's a lot. Not, if you're not familiar with that term, it's because the blue lines were set on paper. That To me, it always smelled a little bit like bubble gum. And the, the type is blue. And the pages have this sort of sticky, a little bit of a sticky kind of feel to them. And most publishers don't do printed blue lines anymore, but they're still called blues. They're, it's all electronic now. Well, we'd love to take a couple of questions from the audience if anybody has uh, any. 
question for the new author. If a book is progressing along, how does a new author know which step the book is at, whether it's graduated from one part of the slush pile to another, whether it's gone to Tony Weisskopf, whether mm -hmm. it's being printed, whether it's disappeared or, or what? How, so you how mean the you submission uh, process? Uh, well, I think the answer is you don't, uh, but... I try, I often fail, but I try to inform authors if, for instance, if I have held a novel out of the slush pile for closer review, I try to send an email that says, that's what I've done. If I've gotten to the point where I'm ready to send it on to Tony, I will generally try to send an email that says, your, your manuscript has passed this level of review. It's now at the next level of review. I don't know how long that's going to take. Please be patient. Uh, but I also respond pretty frequently to authors who have waited a while and are wondering where they are in the process. And that, that actually takes up more of my time than I like, but I, I, I try to keep the lines of communication open. Once Tony accepts it for publication, the author will know because she'll send him a contract. So you'll know once it's been accepted. And then we generally try to keep the authors informed once they've submitted it to us. You know, well, we're going to publish it next year in the fall season. We're planning to publish it. We try to keep the authors to give them an idea of, of when they're coming out. And Yeah. We'll keep them abreast, usually, and, and and when we know things are scheduled, we'll if they ask, we'll tell them something. Uh, it, there's nothing more fun, by the way, than than writing that letter to the author you're going to take their book. You know, I love that. Um, the uh, I just did one that we're going to publish a, a a fantasy called The Seer, that um, is by a woman named Sonia Lyris, and it's a great book, and I I. Read it, loved it. Uh, Tony read it. We talked it over, and uh, and we bought it. So, and just writing her that letter was so much fun because I knew she was going to be very happy, and she was. So, yes. I know on some agents' blogs and some editors, they have a some of them have a standard rejection letter, whereas others have. If you get this, this is what it means. If you get this, this is what it means. Do you guys just have one standard, or are they different, depending on how good writing is? We do have a standard rejection letter, and I frequently will edit it to, to personalize it, if I feel that's appropriate, or to comment on something, you know, if the level of writing was was pretty good, but the story was not quite what we were looking for. I try to, to include that. I don't do it all the time. Um, but we have, I have a collection, if you will, of sort of standard rejection letters. For instance, I have one that says, thank you, but we are only looking for science fiction and fantasy. Therefore, your work does not fit our needs. And that saves me the time of doing that over and over again. When it's something that is a standard problem, you'll get a standard yeah. rejection. That was just, you know, yeah. some change a little. Yeah. So I think that's about it, what we have now.
time thanks to Tom Kratman, author of the latest novel, Come and Take Them, Gray Reinhardt. Uh, look for his stories out there and check out his CD. And Laura Haywood Corey, rock on, Laura. And thanks to all of you for being with us and being a wonderful audience. And you can thanks. Welcome to Alternate 1887. Frances Gon Fabian and Gabrielle Cubier is a secret agent for the Democratic and Social Republic of France. Her task, trade a document case of landscape drawings for one containing stolen blueprints, vital to the British war effort. Actually, they're blueprints for a floating battleship. But Gabrielle finds that espionage is not always as easy when the man she believes to be her contact winds up dead. Now, a thousand feet above the Bavarian countryside, Gabrielle must solve a murder before she's found out and pitched into the wild blue yonder by the culprit. The story is a prequel to Frank Chadwick's upcoming alt-history steampunk, uh, science-based steampunk novel, The Forever Engine, which you should really check out. The story is called Murder on the Hockflieger Ost, and this is part two. Etienne watched through the narrow crack of his partly open stateroom door as the French lady, the baron, a ship's officer, and an older gentleman passed in the corridor. Once they were gone, he entered the hallway and walked in the opposite direction. Soon came to the door, guarded by one of the stewards. Etienne walked up to him as casually as he could manage. Quite some excitement, eh? he said. Yes, sir, the young steward answered. And that woman, he touched his fingertips to his lips. A real beauty, the steward agreed with a smile. And she is French, like you, sir. Oh, I am not French, Etienne corrected him. I am Genesier, from the island of Guernsey. We all love Queen Victoria very much there. The steward looked confused, but Etienne forged ahead. Did you perhaps overhear her name? She seems quite charming. Yes, uh, Gabrielle Courbière. She deals in art. Etienne thanked the steward and walked back down the corridor in the direction he had just come. Gabrielle Courbière. The name seemed to sing in his head. Gabrielle, he thought, and then shook his head. A woman this courageous and resourceful, this dedicated to their cause, would not be so frivolous as to go by her first name. No, she would be simply Cobière. She had the strength and majesty of a mountain, he thought, yes, a mountain. Mont Cobière, he said to himself, and Villon repeated it, liking the sound of the name. Now he must rescue her from her terrible danger, even if doing so cost him his life. First, he would need to create a diversion. Gabrielle found one thing in this affair puzzling. If Baron Renfrew had murdered the agent Armbruster and taken the stolen plans which seemed increasingly likely, why had he agreed to a search of the cabins? One possibility was that he was considered above suspicion and so his cabin would not be searched. 
Another was that he had hidden the plans and perhaps already disposed of the leather document tube. But why would he do these things? Why not simply turn Armbruster over to the authorities and recover the plans in that manner? Germany was an ally of Britain and would surely have cooperated. Then she remembered that in her own stateroom was a leather document tube containing charcoal sketches of the French countryside and rendered in the style of Millet. She hoped she was above suspicion as well. Otherwise, explaining the presence of those items could prove extremely difficult. Oh, my, she said. I beg you pardon, the Baron said. I was just recalling that I uh, forgot to lock my stateroom when I left it earlier. I hope nothing has been disturbed. I would normally say you have nothing to worry about, but that seems patently untrue this evening. He said this with wry humor, Gabrielle noticed. Despite the physical evidence, it was difficult for her to reconcile men she observed standing beside her with a verdict of murder. On one hand, he seemed genuinely puzzled by those events, but on the other hand, somehow amused by them, or perhaps entertained, would be the better word. What sort of a man is entertained by the events surrounding the murder of an acquaintance? Another party of officers joined the group in the small passenger lounge they had appropriated as a headquarters. The chief purser raised his hand for attention and then explained the situation to the others. They would break into teams of two crewmen each, one a purser's assistant with a pass key and one a ship's officer for additional authority. As the passengers would be asleep, they must wake them and conduct a search as politely as possible and without alarming them, but with dispatch. What does this tube look like? one officer asked. I believe I can help with that, Baron Renfrew said. I sent for my man Winslow, and right here he is now. Gabrielle turned and saw a very well-dressed man enter the lounge, and he carried the very document case Gabrielle had seen with Armbruster. She nearly gasped with surprise, but managed to restrain herself and maintain a look of outward calm. Madame Cobier, going by your previous description, it seemed this case of mine was similar to that carried by Mr. Armbruster, which you say that was so? The Baron asked this with his eyes locked on hers, and his expression intent. Gabrielle stepped forward and looked at the case carefully. I would say it is identical. A murmur ran through the assembled officers. Of course, the case we are looking for contains rare art, doesn't it? This one contains only my fly rod. He removed the lid and showed the officers its contents. Several nodded in appreciation of the obvious quality of the rod it contained. Also, I doubt Mr. Armbruster's missing container will have my name on it he added and pointed to the engraved brass plate attached near the carrying strap. A Christmas gift last year from my wife Alexandra, he added. He was very clever, this Baron Renfrew, Gabrielle thought. He had deflected any suspicion from having the plans by bringing Armbruster's container here to display. Or perhaps 
It was the case's double. Was he planning a switch of his own? But how would he know what the container looked like? No, unlikely. This must be the case itself. But why would Armbruster's case have Renfrew's name on it? Could the Baron have affixed it to the case after stealing it? Perhaps. Are there any other questions? the chief purser asked. I have two additional points to make, Gabrielle added. The chief purser glanced to Renfrew and, apparently having received the right nonverbal reply, nodded to her. First, the thief may have transferred the art to a different container, so look for any document tube. Second, and most importantly, you must, under no circumstances, open and examine the container. It contains very delicate artwork, which is potentially priceless, both in its own right and for its historical significance. I have the equipment in my cabin to examine it and determine its authenticity, but uh, none of you has been trained to handle such fragile items without damaging them. Such damage would be unconscionable. The chief purser, perhaps mindful of Baron Renfrew's earlier advice concerning the delicate relations between France and Germany, reinforced her instructions not to open the container, and then he sent the parties on their way, leading one himself. Gabrielle and Renfrew were left alone in the lounge. Renfrew drew a cigar from the inner pocket of his jacket and fingered it idly. You intend to smoke here? Gabrielle asked. Renfrew looked down at the cigar and then back to her with a smile. No, I am not suicidal. We are surrounded by hydrogen gas cells, and they are notorious for giving off thin but constant stream of flammable gas. And that is why all firearms and incendiaries are collected upon boarding. All the interior lights are Edison bulbs. And there are no carpets. Wouldn't want to have someone shuffling along in their stockings and cause a static electricity spark. It's a bother, of course. I'd rather enjoy a smoke now and then. Gabrielle realized with a sinking feeling that her own revolver would do her no good, unless she intended to incinerate herself and everyone else aboard, which she did not. Something still tickling at her brain. When had Renfrew's nameplate attached itself to Armbruster's container? Your wife, Alexandra, are you close to her? Gabrielle asked. Renfrew frowned. An arranged marriage and a complicated relationship. She's very dear to me, but uh, in a distant sort of way. You have no doubt heard I spent considerable time with other ladies. No, I know nothing of your personal life. How would I? He smiled at that, as if she had made a joke. Then he looked at her in dawning realization. You are serious. You really don't know who I am, do you? I thought you were Baron Renfrew. Was that a lie? It is one of my titles. I am Albert Edward, Baron Renfrew, Earl of Dublin, Duke of Cornwall and Rothesay, Prince of Wales, 
and heir apparent to the British throne. Gabrielle felt momentarily light-headed as she realized the extent to which she had misinterpreted the situation in which she found herself. But uh, the name Renfrew... Whenever I travel unofficially, I travel under that name, although everyone, everyone, it seems but you, knows who I am. It is simply my way of making it clear I wish no fuss or ceremony. Then your relatives in Germany? Yes, you've probably heard of my nephew, Willie. He's the crown prince. As his poor father, my brother-in-law is dying from throat cancer. I'll wager Willie is Kaiser before the next year is out. That should prove interesting. Before Gabrielle could reply, they both heard shouting in the hallway and the sounds of a tussle. The door burst open and two ship's crewmen entered, holding between them a short, dark-haired man who struggled and shouted in English. I am the subject, Britannique. You will release me at once. The Prime Minister will hear of this. Now what's all this? Renfrew asked. The chief purser entered behind the struggling trio and squeezed past them. This man was running in the corridor and pounding on doors, alarming the passengers with a story of a fire on board. It nearly started a panic, but my men apprehended him. He claims to be English. Genesier, the man practically screamed, from the island of Guernsey. Ah, oui. The Bellywick of Chancy, Gabrielle said. It is one of the Channel Islands between France and Britain. But you know this man is not truly a British subject. The British passport is extended to them as a matter of courtesy. But he is a subject of the Baron Renfrew's family directly, from before, when they still ruled Hanover, n'est-ce pas? Most of the men, aside from Renfrew, looked confused by her explanation. The prisoner, his longish hair disheveled and nearly covering his eyes, stared at her like a wounded animal, as if somehow she had betrayed him. But how could she have? She had never seen him before in her life. Herr Hauptzahlmeister, another crewman said from the open doorway. We found this when we searched the man's cabin. He entered holding a leather document tube identical to the one in Gabrielle's stateroom. Might this be the correct tube, Madame Courbier, the chief purser said, taking it from the crewman and handing it to her. She stood holding the tube and looking at it as she thought. She looked up at the man being held by two crewmen in front of her, the man who spoke with a French accent and traveled under a British passport, and in an instant she understood everything, well, nearly everything. I think you should take that tube to your stateroom and examine it, Madame Courbier, Renfrew said. When she looked at him, she thought his eyes, particularly serious and fraught with meaningful intent, although she could not determine the exact message he intended to convey. If this is the artwork, it will be quite valuable. Perhaps a man can accompany her. Of course, Herr Baron, the chief purser replied and gestured to the crewman who had brought the tube. 
Wait outside the door where she makes the examination, Renfrew added. That was convenient, she thought. In ten minutes she returned to the lounge, having quickly verified that the stolen plans were in a leather tube and having exchanged it for the tube containing the charcoal sketches. Only Renfrew and the chief purser remained of the previous crowd. She assumed the young Frenchman had been placed under arrest and removed to a holding cell. So are these the drawings? Renfrew asked with a small smile. Oui, but uh, unfortunately they are forgeries. Quite good, but unmistakable to an expert. And without value. Would you care to examine them? When he shook his head, she handed the tube to the chief purser. Evidence, I believe, she said. Danke schön, Madame Corbière, the chief purser said, and then, after a glance at Renfrew, he departed and closed the door behind him. They have taken the man from Jancy away? she asked Renfrew when they were alone. No, the baron answered. The fellow shouted, You will never torture her name from me, broke free and ran. No one was much concerned, as there's nowhere to run on a zeppelin a thousand feet in the air, but the fellow got out onto the observation deck and dove over the rail, shouted a slogan of some sort as he went, but no one could make it out over the noise of the engines. You wouldn't have any idea whose name he meant, would you? Is he dead? Really? Gabrielle asked. I should think so. He would have to be the luckiest man on earth to survive that fall, and from what little I saw of him, he did not strike me as very lucky at all. So you found the battleship plans and have them safely tucked away? Gabrielle again felt light-headed, but retained her composure. Her first inclination was denial, but that would be pointless. The evidence would be easier to discover. Instead, she took a moment to think. Had you wanted to arrest me, she said, I believe you would have done so while the chief purser was here. So you intend to allow me to keep the plans and return them to my superiors, oui? But your loyalty to Britain cannot be questioned, so I must ask. What renders the plans worthless? Renfrew smiled. What do you think? It may be that they are forgeries, she answered, intended to be stolen, but that would be discovered once they were examined by our engineers. So what would be the point? Perhaps they could be bait, a catch to eliminate whatever agents are involved. But for me, that is too complicated to be believed. Or they could be authentic, but simply no use to us. This seems most likely. But then, why is there such a fuss, closing the Pas de Calais crossings and so close to Christmas? Perhaps, he answered, because the men in charge of protecting them do not realize they will be of no use to you. Their job, after all, is simply to protect, and the less they know about the secrets themselves, the better. As to the plans, 
This new class of ether warship relies on its superior performance, on the use of an analytical engine of new design and enhanced function, the improved baggage model 330. The place where the analytical engine will be installed is clearly marked on the plans, but without the device itself, they will do you no good. Ah! Three things remain unexplained, Gabrielle said. First, why do you not tell your security people to call off the fruitless and unnecessary search for the plans? Because the head of security is a political opponent, and this failure of his will embarrass and weaken him. Your second question? How did you know I was a spy? Knowing Waldo Armbruster as I did, I knew he would never have come up with rare art, or the idea of trying to forge it, so I concluded the entire story must be a fraud aimed at finding that case. But if it was the wrong case, as I know it had to be, there must be a right one somewhere. And what might that hold of interest to France? The missing plans seemed the obvious candidate. It is gratifying to have my speculation confirmed. Your third question? Knowing I am the French spy, why do you allow me to return with these worthless plans? If you intend to force me to be a double agent, I do not think you will succeed. Nothing so dire as that, my dear. The truth is, I wish your safe return to serve as a message to your superiors. There are times when the interests of Britain and those of France are actually congruent. Unfortunately, our governments can seldom work in accord in those cases while remaining publicly belligerent. And this prolonged state of public belligerence is too useful for too many politicians in both governments to be set aside. Do you understand? You wish to open the door to discreet and uh, unofficial cooperation with my department when our interests coincide. Precisely. She thought about that for a moment. That explained almost everything but left one critical question unanswered. Was she standing in the presence of a murderer? If so, she knew she was still in profound danger. I cannot speak for my superiors, she said, but I will convey this desire to them. But I must repay my personal debt to you myself, for that I must ask one more question. Renfrew smiled in warm anticipation. Have you hired two bodyguards to travel with you? A look of surprise replaced his smile. Bodyguards? No, nothing like that. I generally travel alone, except for my valet, Winslow. Well, then, uh, I must tell you, there are two men on board who harbor ill intentions toward you, and seem prepared to act upon them, although I do not know how they intend to do so. Gabrielle then explained the entire overheard conversation in the salon, the one man telling the other to attend to their business and their attention on Armbruster as part of that business because he had been involved with the Prince of Wales in some sort of trouble. 
Ah, that would be Baccarat, Renfrew answered. Chemin de fer, to be precise, Armbruster introduced me into several games in London. He lost heavily, I'm afraid, and there was a row over his debts. And this involved you? How? Well, it was passed around that I was present, and Baccarat is illegal in Britain. Illegal? Really? A game illegal? Why? It can be very high stakes, and anything which provides an opportunity for the wealthy to transfer their fortunes to the inferiors is generally frowned on. But as to these two chaps... Chaps! she interrupted him. What does this word mean? A chap is a fellow, that's all, he answered. Oh, and a bounder? A bad sort of chap. Now as to these two men... Was one thin and one heavy? Gabrielle nodded absently, her mind on her earlier mistakes. She did not reprimand herself. Her mistakes had been honest ones, based on ignorance, which had now been corrected. Still, she understood how remarkably fortunate she had been to escape disaster. In the future she would have to prepare more meticulously, but first she must finish... The last bit of this affair, she noticed Renfrew was still talking. Pardonnez-moi, she said. I was just saying, I, I think I've seen those men before. I should have been more alert. From what you say, they wish to uncover some indiscretion with which to embarrass the royal family. Now that you've alerted me, I can take steps, and I am grateful for that. But they are English. Are they hired agents of an enemy power? Doubtful. I suspect they are minions of my domestic political enemies. Oh, and now I will do you one more service of a more personal nature. Please follow me. Again smiling broadly, Renfrew did as she asked, and they passed through corridors and down companionways until they reached the door to the engineering spaces. Gabrielle had never been here before, but she had studied the layout of the Zeppelin carefully and knew what lay below. These areas were prohibited to passengers, but she passed through without hesitation. The crewmen, working at the electrical generators, looked up at them. As they anticipated, bowed quickly to Renfrew, then smirked and nudged each other as they saw Gabrielle leading him. They passed along a narrow corridor flanked by tanks of compressed gas, which Gabrielle took to be hydrogen, then down another companionway and through a door into the open night air. The air was cold, and the drone of powerful engines to each side assaulted their senses. Gabrielle was sensitive to loud noise, but her attention was immediately drawn to the landscape stretched below them. A winding river shone silver in the moonlight, and the scattered lights of small villages among the miniature grey fields and forests seemed like enchanted fireflies, which never winked out. The sense of height made her dizzy, and she was completely aware that a man of Renfrew's strength could simply throw her over the railing, and no one would ever question him about it. Still, 
This was the only place she could also find a measure of safety. The prince stood beside her, their shoulders touching, and he followed her gaze downward. Yes, the view is different without a glass window, isn't it? he said. Somehow more immediate. I've never been down this low on the ship before. Neither have I, but I noticed this platform when I boarded. She walked down the metal steps to the catwalk below, holding the brass railings for safety. When they were both there, she turned to Renfrew. Now my service to you, the hydrogen leaks, but as it is lighter than air, it all goes up. We are below the gas bags here. You may safely smoke your cigar. Renfrew looked around doubtfully. That makes sense, but are you certain? Observe, she said, and pointed to several stubbed-out cigarette butts near the side of the walkway. Renfrew smiled and lit his cigar. Gabrielle shivered in the cold, and although Renfrew offered the loan of his coat, she refused. Instead, she fit both of her hands into her cloth handbag. For warmth, she told him. But inside the bag, her right hand curled around the small Le Faucheux revolver. Firing it here would be as safe as Renfrew smoking his cigar. She slowly cocked the hammer, and she rested her hands on the railing. The concealed pistol pointed at Renfrew's torso and only inches away from him. For several minutes, the two enjoyed the view in silence. How did Armbruster die? she said at last. Or should I ask, how did his blood splash on your shoe when no one disturbed the blood in the cabin? Renfrew took another long draw on his cigar before answering. As the doctor said, he fell and hit his head on the table. He was quite drunk. When we hit a patch of turbulence, over he went. Damnest thing. And there I just stood for a moment. Well, there would be awkward newspaper headlines if I stayed around to explain, so... I took what I came for and left. Your fly rod case, she said. Yes, although what I really wanted was hidden down in the bottom. A diamond necklace I had made in Amsterdam, Christmas present for my wife, Alexandra. It's quite valuable, which I suppose is why Waldo pinched the case. Would you like to see it? Merci, no. I never wear jewelry. Its weight feels peculiar, especially around my neck. My clothes feel almost uh, a part of me when I wear them, but jewelry feels hard and alien. You wear a locket, he observed. It was my mother's before she died. I am used to it. Inside her handbag, Gabrielle carefully lowered the hammer of the revolver. Renfrew took another long pull on his cigar. I assume you will be getting off at Vienna, now that you have what you want. You are a very odd young lady, Gabrielle, but I certainly hope to see you again. Yes, I do as well, although I do not believe there will be a romance. 
No, he said and smiled. No, you are a very handsome man despite your sinning hair and being somewhat heavy. You are too kind, he murmured. Not at all. When I say something, it is because I believe it is true, never to flatter. So you are handsome, but uh, your eyes show no pain. Only determination or amusement. Either you have never felt pain, in which case you are a monster, or you are able to hide it completely, in which case you are dangerous. I must say, he said after a moment, you are quite good at avoiding flattery. The truth is I am rather occupied with Daisy Creville these days, so a romance would be unlikely in any case, but I would value your friendship. Gabrielle looked out over the railing and saw the clouds above them already pink with the dawn and the land below turning from black to gray. Far below she saw a flicker of movement, the wing of a hunting bird in a dive, perhaps an owl making the last kill of the night. She shivered. Why would someone take his own life? she asked. I honestly can't tell you, Renfro answered. I won't pretend that life is always easy or pleasant. It isn't. But it's so damned interesting. I can't for the life of me see why someone would just step away. Nor can I, Gabrielle said. That was the finale of Frank Chadwick's complete short story, Murder on the Hochflieger Ost. Be sure to check out Frank's excellent science-based alternate history novel, The Forever Engine, steampunk on science for more set in this world. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Laura Haywood Corey, to Rika Daniel, and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz and a washing machine equipped with Wagner's complete ring cycle, and a bouquet of 128-millimeter peonies and chrysanthemum fireworks to Tom Crapman, Gray Reinhardt, Laura Haywood Corey, and the folks at Mysticon in Roanoke, Virginia. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars 